Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. This week on Southcrest Live, featuring Dr. David Wilson, we continue our study, Knowing and Growing, from 2 Peter. In the concluding verses of chapter 1, Peter speaks directly to the importance and trustworthiness of the Scriptures, explaining the Scriptures' purpose and how God brought them into existence in God Said It, That Settles It, from Pastor David Wilson. We're going to talk about the Bible today. To open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to speak on the last three verses, but I want to begin reading in verse 16. And I remind you that Peter is about to defend their gospel. He's against false teaching. He's going to defend the, uh, the second coming of Christ that they've proclaimed to people. But he's also sharing with us in the last part of chapter 1 how reliable, how true the Bible is. I would like to begin reading in verse 16. Because it is God's word, would you stand while I read? Y'all do believe it's God's word, don't you? Verse 16, Peter said, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts now confirming the truth of your word, reminding us that it is reliable and true and without error. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, you may be seated. We live in a day and age where you don't know what to believe anymore. Well, you and I know what to believe, but you're bombarded with false information. I have some unfortunate news for you. Today could be my last Sunday with you because I received a call from the IRS (laughs) telling me that there was a warrant for my arrest. And if I didn't pay it with gift cards, my back taxes, that I would go to jail. I got this on my home phone and my cell phone. So y'all gotten that call too? Okay, good. I feel better. We'll all go to jail together then. (laughs) You know, we're just bombarded with all kinds of nonsense today. People trying to steal from you and to, they're just lying to you. 
And it's good to know that there's a place we can go that is not lying to us. The Bible. There are a lot of people that don't believe the Bible. They don't believe the Bible is God's word. Well, today we're going to talk about that. You know, the Bible is clearly the most influential book the world has ever known. It was written by 40 different people over a period of 1,600 years. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Its writers came from all walks of life, prophets, priests, shepherds, kings, servants, doctors, tax collectors, Pharisees. It was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. A gap of more than 400 years exists between the New, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. The writers inscribed God's word on sheepskin and goatskin and papyrus and parchment. They were written in different places. The first five books of the Old Testament were written in the desert, the Sinai Peninsula. The first, at least four letters of Paul were written while he was in prison. Peter is writing this letter while he's in prison. Daniel wrote from the courts of Babylon, and some of the Psalms were written out in the fields of Judea where David was watching sheep. And yet, when you read the Bible, you're going to find that over all those years and all those different people and all those different circumstances, you're going to find that it has one redemption story. It has a continuity about it. It bears the mark of one author, God. If I were to pick 10 of you and I were to um, say, I'm going to give you a year to write a book about the meaning of life. And you accepted it. And I said, but here's the condition. You cannot talk to one another. You cannot converse with one another this entire year. You have to write it on your own. And then at the end of the year, we're going to compile it all together. Now, even though you're in the same church and the same community and you speak the same language, when we brought it all together, they would not have the same, would they? There might be one thread of continuity that says that Jesus Christ is uh, the Savior because we all believe that. If, if you're a member here, you, you've been born again. But, but, and yet the Bible, over all these hundreds of years, when all these different people that were involved is interwoven perfectly. The Bible begins with a paradise and a special tree in that paradise. And it's described by Moses in Genesis. And then in Revelation, you have John describing another paradise. And there's a tree in the middle of that paradise. And all in between, you've got man who's thrown out of the first garden because of his sin. And all of the rest of the Bible is God trying to redeem man and providing the price and paying the price and providing atonement for sin so that one day we can go to this other paradise for eternity. That's what it's about. We have more manuscripts in the Bible about the Bible text than any other ancient writing. This tells us something about how God has preserved his word over the centuries. Today, we have roughly 25,000 uh, preserved uh, either um, fragments or, or complete New Testament manuscripts. 
6,000 of them in Greek, 10,000 in Latin, 10,000 more in other ancient languages. But even if we didn't have those manuscripts, there are enough early church father writings to compile the whole New Testament, just about all of it, because they quote the New Testament. Did I say Old Testament? The New Testament. They quote the New Testament 86,000 times. And so as Peter begins to get ready to uh, defend false teachers and not defend them, but uh, defend against them. He, he stated that they've been repeating the truth to us. And then he said, we have the eyewitness account. But then these last few verses talk about to me how reliable the scripture is. God said it, that settles it, whether you and I believe it or not. With that in mind, I first want you to notice the confirmation of God's word in verse 19. It says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Now, if you have a King James version of the Bible, I'm reading out of the new King James version. The original King James says, we also, we, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. The English standard version says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. There are two ways to look at the meaning of this phrase. Some say that Peter is saying, well, we, even though we had an eyewitness account of Jesus, and that's authentic and that should be good, the more sure thing is the word that's been given by the prophets. It's the more sure thing. Experience is one thing, but the more sure thing is the word of God. And, and the Old Testament canon or the Old Testament books were compiled. They were finished by four, about, uh, you know, the fourth century B.C., so they had the Old Testament. And, and so some were saying in, in, the new, in the King James Version and the English Standard Version translates it that way. Do you understand what I'm saying? Eyewitness is one thing, but the more sure thing is the prophetic word. But I believe it means something else. And I believe it's borne out in the New King James and in the New American Standard and the NIV, which basically says this, that the prophecy of Scripture that was given has been confirmed by the eyewitness account of the apostles. And it's made it even more sure. It's made it a more sure thing. We had the Old Testament. We knew about the Messiah that was supposed to come. And there are at least 318 prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus the first time. And he said, we've seen it. And that confirms it even makes it even more sure and if all of those prophecies are, are, have happened, then how more confirming is it that Jesus is coming again? And that's what we're t telling you about. So he's standing on the fact that we've seen this Jesus. Incidentally, folks, it's incredible the mathematical calculations of odds of this happening by accident. I mean, you and I cannot conceive the number. Let's just say, well, let's say there are 318 prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus that he fulfilled. The odds of that happening by one man, I don't know the word. It's something alien, but I don't know the first part of that. But let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's just say him fulfilling eight of them by accident. Now, Peter Stoner is a mathematician that calculated the odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight of those prophecies 
by accident. What are the odds? Well, I've forgotten the Ilian word that he used, but he explained it this way. He said, you take silver dollars and you spread them across Texas four feet deep, or maybe it was two feet, either one, two feet deep over the state of Texas. You mark one of them. Put a mark on one of those silver dollars and you can mix up the silver dollars all over the state as much as you want. And then you drop a man blindfolded into the, the, the state of Texas and say, you can walk anywhere you want blindfolded and you're going to pick up one silver dollar. The odds of him picking up that one marked silver dollar, the same odds of Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies by accident. And he fulfilled 318 of them. Now, your little finite mind and my little finite mind can't put a number that big in our brains. In fact, if Peter is saying, because we've seen him, because we've seen him, it just confirms the word of God that much more because the prophecies have been fulfilled. Now, if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, about verse 10, you'll see that the prophets were moved by God to speak things about the coming Messiah, and some of them didn't understand it. They didn't understand what salvation was going to look like. Many of the Old Testament prophets prophesied about that. They didn't understand it. And then about verse 12, Peter says that you and I have the privilege on this side of the cross and the resurrection and the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit indwelt believers we are privileged to see it. We understand it. Even the angels are marveling about it, it says in verse 12. And so just because they prophesied that they didn't understand it didn't mean it wasn't going to happen. And Peter is saying, we saw Jesus. We know he's real. We know that he fulfilled. And it makes the word of God that much more sure. Y'all with me so far? So you see the confirmation. But then he talks about the illumination of God's word. Notice what he says in verse uh, 19. We have the prophetic word confirmed, made more sure, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Hmm. Peter's saying the Old Testament prophets predicted the power and glory of Jesus and his coming. And since we've seen that and it's sure, then you need to listen and heed and follow the word of God. That's why I asked you a minute ago, do you believe it's God's word? Or is it just a book? No, I don't believe it's a book. I believe it's not just a book. It's God's book. It's God's word given to you and me. One lady was sending a Bible to her relative. She had it wrapped up at the post office. The post uh, office clerk asked the question, is there anything breakable in this package? And she said, only the Ten Commandments. <laughs> God's given us this light. Did you notice what he says in verse 19? You, you, you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. A lamp reminds me of the pledge to the Bible, which is partially quote Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word dark in verse 19 is the only place it's used in the New Testament. 
It, it not only means the absence of light, but it, but it also means dirty or foul. We use words like gloomy and dismal and dreary and bleak and grim and heavy and joyless, cheerless, hopeless in describing the world. We live in a world that's darkened by sin. And folks, it's getting darker by the day. And the light that we have is right here. Because it's, it's a light that shows me in the darkness of sin that there's hope in Jesus. It shows me that there's forgiveness in Jesus. It shows me that there's eternal life in Jesus. It's the hope. It's the light in a world of darkness. It shows me that Jesus never leaves me. And he never forsakes me. I will not ever be left an orphan. I will never be left alone. And that one day when he comes back, I'm going to go home with him. It's a light in a dark place. And he says, you need to heed this. You need to follow it. You need to go along with it until when? Notice what he says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The word the day dawns means it's going to shine through. The morning star was a Greek word. It's one word in the Greek language. It's the word phosphorus. Phos means light, pharos means to bear or to carry, and so it means a light bearing until the, the one bearing light comes. Now, who do you think that is? I believe he's talking about Jesus because we're going to live in a world of darkness until the day dawns when Jesus comes, the light of the world comes. <laughs> We won't even be in any darkness anymore. In fact, did you know one of the, the characteristics of heaven? There'll be no night there. There'll be no darkness there because the glory of God illuminates the place. And the, and the morning star refers to Christ. He's called that in Revelation uh, chapter 6 and also Revelation, excuse me, Revelation chapter 2, verse 28 and, and Revelation 22, 16. He's called the day spring from on high in Luke 178. And Peter wants us to see that one day the morning star is coming. The morning star was the one right before the dawn. We just know that this, this is the light until the morning star gets here. And we won't need it then. The word of God will stand forever, but we'll, we'll, be, we'll be with Jesus. We'll have his word. It takes place in your hearts right now. And what he's saying is the emphasis is that it changes you from the inside. It shows us light in the, in the sinful world, but it, it changes you on the inside. And he's making a remarkable statement. He's saying that the Bible will continue to point people to the ultimate source of truth, the Lord himself, until he returns in glory. The Gideons give out Bibles. Why? Because it points people to Jesus. And if you get people to read their Bible, it will point people to Jesus. Paul said, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5 and 6, For we do not preach ourselves, 
but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, folks, we are supposed to heed this, to obey this. We don't come to it saying, well, this is what I want. This is how I want to live. Let me see if I can find a verse that will let me get by with it. True story. It happened many years ago, but it's a true story told by uh, a naval officer, Frank Koch, who, quoted, who was quoted in an article for a magazine of the Naval Institute. Here's what Frank said. Two battleships had been at sea on maneuvers in heavy weather for several days. I was serving on the lead battleship and was on watch on the bridge as night fell. The visibility was poor with patchy fog, so our captain remained on the bridge keeping an eye on all the activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout said, light bearing on the starboard bow. The captain said to the signalman, and he was signaling with lights, Signal that ship, we are on a collision course, advise you change course 20 degrees. The signal came back, advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, send this, I am a captain, change course 20 degrees. The light flashed back, I'm a seaman, second class, you had better change course 20 degrees. By this time, the captain was furious, and he spat out, Send, I'm a battleship, change course 20 degrees. And the light came flashing back, said, I am a lighthouse. <laughs> and Frank said, we changed course. <laughs> you know, sometimes we argue with the Bible, but it is God's word. It says what it says. And we're supposed to heed it. So he confirms the word of God and you see how it illuminates us and illuminates the path that we have in this dark world. But folks, I don't want you to miss this. And I'm going to get a little technical in this, so stay with me. The origination of God's word. Now verse 20 says this, knowing this first that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 has been interpreted different ways. The Roman Catholic Church uses this verse to teach that individuals are not permitted to interpret the Bible for themselves. Rather, they must depend on the official teaching of the church. The practical result of this is that many Roman Catholics have never read or studied the Bible for themselves. I'm not being critical. I'm just telling you the truth. And for many years, the church opposed, the Catholic church opposed translating the Bible into common language of the people for fear that they would misinterpret it. There were people that died for you to have a copy of an English translation. So the, the Bible that you hold in your hand came with a trail of blood behind it because of the interpretations. They were martyred. But folks, that means that Catholics had to depend on the priests as the correct interpreters of the scripture. 
But that's not what this says. And furthermore, the Bible, the word of God is over the church. The church is not over the word. Do you understand? Because see, some believe whatever the church says, it doesn't matter what the word of God says, the church will follow this. No, we follow the word of God. That's what we are as a church. So what it tells us to do, we do. Well, what is Peter saying here? First of all, God's word came as a result of heavenly inspiration. Now look at the word in verse 20. It says, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. The word interpretation here is the only place it's used in the Bible. We, we think of interpretation of taking somebody, say, taking a foreign language and then putting it into the language that we understand. But the, the word literally means loosening or liberating something. Figuratively, it means an interpretation of something that is obscure. In this case, it would speak of someone who revealed a truth in the spiritual realm otherwise wouldn't be available to us. Sort of like when you have a package that's wrapped, a gift that's been given to you, you don't know what's inside it and neither does anyone else know. So you unloose it, you unravel it, you un. Uh, you liberate it, <laughs> you open it so you can see what's inside. Then you understand what's there. Well, here's the picture. And also, I want you to know that the word is, in verse 20, no prophecy of scripture is, can also mean comes or came about. So I believe that this verse is saying that the origin of scripture did not come from a group of people who just got together and wrote some stuff on their own. I also believe it, it denotes that you cannot interpret the Bible according to your own whims. In other words, if you decide I'm going to live this way, now I'm going to try to have the, have the Bible interpreted to make, me, make it okay for me to live in sin, whatever that sin might be. Well, because we don't like, we don't like, we like to look for the loopholes, don't we? Let's, let's find the loopholes that'll let me live like I already have a bent to live anyway. You can't interpret the Bible that way. You have to interpret it in its context and objectively, not subjectively. You're going to see here in, in the next few weeks that these false teachers were interpreting it subjectively, not objectively, looking at what did God say, now what do I need to do? They were saying, no, well, I believe this and, I, you know, whatever. So heavenly inspiration, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it literally says God breathed. So it came from God. But it also came by human involvement. Now, I know that's the last blank for you to fill out, but give me about five or six more minutes. I'm not done. And I'm going to get technical, but I want you to stay with me because I want you to know you'll be confronted with this sometime. I was confronted with it in school. 
You'll be confronted with it today by people who try to interpret the Bible however they want to interpret it. So, some would say that the Bible came from, this is not right, but they came, it came from natural inspiration. And what I mean by that is that sometimes you're inspired by a piece of art or you're inspired by the beauty of nature or Shakespeare's writings might inspire you some way. Well, what they're saying is that God had nothing to do with it. They were just inspired by something God did and they wrote it down according to their own device and their own whims. Well, that, the Bible doesn't say that about that. It says all scripture is God-breathed. So we know natural inspiration isn't right. Y'all look tired. I know you are. I'm just about done. I can tell. I see lots of eyes closed and lots of yawning. Hey, I had to do this in seminary, so you got to put up with it too, okay? <laughs> I'm just teasing. But really, I really want you to understand this because you're going to be confronted with it. Amen. The second is partial inspiration. Partial inspiration. And there are three views of this. Let me summarize them. First of all, that God's, that the, the scriptures are a human product, but they contain the word of God. That God gave them a few scriptural insights to write down, but the rest of it, the history, the science, all of that stuff is not accurate. Just a few things that God gave them to write down. So it contains the word of God. It is not the word of God. It contains the word of God. But the problem with that is, how do you know which one is and which one isn't? That's not true. Another view of partial inspiration is the idea, and this was a stretch to me, but there are people who believe this, that men wrote the Bible, wrote the book and all their imperfections and all its errors. And then when you read it, it becomes the word of God to you. Well, I'm just telling you there are people who believe that. The, again, the problem is if I begin to read it, I'm thinking, all right, is God telling me this is the word of God or am I thinking this on my own? You know, if, if, if that's what God is condescending to us to, to use whatever. There's a Greek word for that. It's baloney. <laughs> There's a third idea of partial inspiration. You can quote me on that. B-A-L-O-N-E-Y. It has a second name. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Where did that come from? I must be tired. <laughs> um, Oscar's the first name. Is that what it is? There's a third idea of this partial inspiration. And is that God simply inspired the ideas that we find in the Bible and then allowed the human writers to write their own words again in their own imperfect way. And but God's perfect truth would be imperfectly communicated. And again, you would not know, does God say this or was this God's idea or whatever? All three of those are wrong. So you've got natural inspiration, partial inspiration, and those three views of that. Then there's one that we'll call mechanical inspiration. Not many people believe this, but we are accused. We are accused of this. 
because basically what they're saying is that God just used the prophets and the apostles and all that wrote as basically human typewriters, that they were in a trance and God just dictated through them. They really didn't have any idea of what they were saying. They just wrote down by rope. The Holy Spirit gave them every word to write by like a typewriter, mechanical inspiration. Not many people believe that, but they, we get accused of that because we believe every word, of the word, every word of the Bible, we get accused of that. So, so how did God's word come to us? What is the correct idea of inspiration? Well, Peter gives a balance here. He said, the prophets spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the word moved is the same word used to picture wind filling the sails of a ship and pushing it along the, mo- the ocean being driven. He said the Holy Spirit moved people to speak. God knew what was being said. God gave them words to say. They weren't robots because he allowed somehow not only there to be heavenly involvement, but he allowed human involvement because it says the holy men of God spoke. So Isaiah doesn't write like Ezekiel and Daniel doesn't write like Jeremiah and Moses has a unique touch and speaks of his own experience in history. David does the same thing, only he does it with more emotion and more sensitivity. You've got John the fisherman who's quiet and profound. You've got Peter who's impulsive and bold and unpolished. You've got Paul who's a scholar and profound you got Luke who writes like a physician, drawing from the writings of others like a thesis paper, only he is also interested in all of the health. So each individual writer displays his own individual personality and style. They were 100% involved, but their works were the born along or moved by the Holy Spirit of God who told them what to write. And say, we call that the verbal plenary inspiration. God put down the exact ideas that he wanted. He put down the words. He put down the tenses of verbs. He protected from error what he gave these men to write. 1 Corinthians 2.13, these things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So folks, the bottom line is this. The Bible is reliable. It is inerrant. It is the truth. It's God's word. R.A. Torrey, had a sermon entitled 10 Reasons Why I Believe the Bible is True. It was D.L. Moody's favorite sermon. He said, the testimony of Jesus Christ, fulfilled prophecies, the unity of the book, the exalted teaching in comparison to every other book, the history of the book, its ability to survive burning and banning and doubt and skepticism, the character of those who accept the book and those who reject the book, the Bible's influence, the inexhaustible depth of the book, our growth and knowledge and holiness as we grow toward the Bible, and the direct testimony of the Holy Spirit. Peter is about to say these false prophets have gotten away from the Bible. 
We have the word of the prophets that's made more sure by the confirmation, by the fulfillment of Jesus Christ and the prophets. We have all of this, and we have the fact that God gave these prophets the word to write. The New Testament was still being written during this time. So, folks, you need to lay hold of the Bible until the Bible lays hold of you. And when you come to the word of God, you don't come and try to interpret it on your own and say, well, you know what? I, 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 want, I want it to say this. No, you, you come and say, this is, what it, this is what it says. And folks, when you interpret it, you've got to have the context. You've got to understand what was being written at the time. You don't pull one verse out and make a whole doctrine on it. And that's what a lot of those TV preachers do. They, they'll just find one box one, one box, one passage of scripture. I mean, I can, you know, I can just open up and say, you know, I could read one of these things. You've got to interpret it responsibly, but you have the Holy Spirit to help you. First John says the Holy Spirit teaches you. The Holy Spirit helps you know if I'm telling you the truth. The Holy Spirit helps you know if I'm telling you a lie. The Holy Spirit helps you know when a false teacher's not, something's not right. I may not, can, can, I may not be on the debate team, but I know something's not right here. The Holy Spirit does that. The, this scripture says there's only one redemption story through Jesus Christ. If you think you're going to get there any other way but through Jesus it's not here. There are no other additions to the scripture. No other testaments, no additions, no addendums, no footnotes. It's God's word. I believe every word of it, even the maps. <laughs> Folks, it says God loves you. God wants you. He'll forgive you. He'll save you. Would you bow your heads? Thank you for staying with me. Thank you, Pastor David. In verses 19 to 21 of 2 Peter 1, having already established that Christian doctrine is more than the cunningly devised fables mentioned earlier, Peter then speaks of the surety of God's prophetic word, how it has been confirmed for Peter by Christ. Peter also speaks of the scripture's power to expel darkness and he explains how God breathed life into them as the Holy Spirit guided the Bible's human authors in the writing of it, providing for us the definitive, inspired, and infallible Word of God. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Be sure to catch our next installment of the Southcrest Live podcast. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information to make a commitment or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.